Let us hear and attend to the word of God. Then he, Jesus, came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it you were disputing among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And we'll end our reading of the Holy Scriptures there this morning. Please be seated. As Christian believers, if we do not stay grounded in the whole counsel of the Word of God, we are too easily influenced with baptized ideas from the world of human experience. This is a constant challenge. That's why we need to hear the faithful exposition of Scripture that goes through those things, those passages, those teachings that we maybe do not address that commonly or that we might otherwise just overlook or that we would prefer to ignore. And what happens is when we pick and choose and sort of cherry-pick various passages of Scripture... What we often find happening is that we baptize human ideas and experiences and adopt them into the church. And so greatness is an example. Greatness as defined by human success. So we lay that over the church and say, oh, well, this is what shows a successful church. It equals what we think of greatness in the world. Greatness in terms of human success, accomplishments, recognition, authority, commanding, office, or rank, Judgment and power to punish. We lay those things over our assessment of what we think makes for a successful church the way we want the church or our Christian faith to be powerful in the world. What grieves me and I've seen happen and continue to happen is the using and the promoting of a business or a political model for church personnel, uh, for structures and for programs in the church. Rather than going to what scripture says, We are constantly in a struggle, constantly having to contend for the authority of Scripture that goes contrary to and against the presumptions of the society in which we live. And to take the Word of God authoritatively, setting out qualifications, classes, offices, responsibilities, titles, those things that the Bible identifies are authoritarian from Christ But we let those things go when we start redefining them in terms of what the world's expectations are and societal pressures so very often. Now here in the Gospel of Mark chapter 9, Jesus gives an object lesson here in verses 35 through 37, which we'll look at this morning. And also it follows up with a case study in verses 38 through 41. So we'll return to that in a couple of weeks. And in this passage, the object lesson and the case study, it's about the otherness of of living by faith in this fallen world that can be best understood as gospel paradoxes. What do we mean by gospel paradoxes? You hear me use that term very often. Well, gospel truths that seem contradictory to human expectations and must be embraced by faith. And that's what I keep preaching to you and what I'm preaching to you this morning, embracing by faith those gospel truths that are contrary and contradictory to the expectations of the world. 
And even erstwhile Christian believers who say, oh, we can never do that. It'll never work. We'll be uh, outcast. We'll be scorned. We'll be laughed at. We'll be targeted. We'll be thought to be unkind if we really say what the Scripture says this way. So these are gospel truths. They're contradictory to human expectations, but they must be embraced by faith. And that's what we have before us this morning. Here in Mark 9, verses 30 through 37, we have a record of the 12 apostles before the resurrection responding to Jesus' persistent teaching about his coming betrayal, his violent death, and his supernatural resurrection. Remember, this was after the uh, coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration and the episode with the father and the demon-possessed boy and the, the scribes and the disputation with the uh, disciples and all that was going on. And then on the road from wherever that was back to Capernaum, Jesus is insistently and persistently teaching them that he is going to be betrayed, that he's going to suffer a violent death, but he is going to resurrect supernaturally on the third day. And so Jesus is pressing this upon them. How did the 12 apostles of Jesus receive this disturbing revelation of what Jesus was saying to them? Jesus was giving them the prophetic word of God. How did they receive it? Well, the gospel accounts, eyewitnesses tell us they were dismayed, they were disconcerted, they were distracted from Jesus' straight talk that is essential to the meaning of the gospel and the kingdom of God in heaven. But they didn't want to hear it. You you might remember that by the transfiguration of Jesus as Christ, the Son of God, the Christian gospel inverts and overpowers the world's power structures and struggles in terms of the kingdom of God in heaven, revealing to us what the real kingdom of God is in the realms of conscience and of providence, how The power of the gospel and the kingdom of God overturns and and turns upside down our, our flesh and the human conception of what is power and kingdom and glory. And Jesus is teaching them about that, and yet they're struggling to understand it. I keep pointing out to you that this chapter 9 is all in the context of the transfiguration of Jesus as the Christ of God. He is the transcendent being empowering the kingdom of God, and by his imminent presence he is with us. As he said, I go to my Father, I send you the Spirit, I'll be with you in a greater day, a greater way. You'll do greater works than I have done during my earthly ministry. And we have to embrace that by faith because by external eyes of the flesh and by the concepts of expectations and human experience of what is power and success, we don't see it that way. We must embrace it by faith. This certainly has to do with, first of all, inverting and overpowering the flesh in terms of our conscience and of God's providence. That What we don't see with our eyes, we believe by faith. In verses uh, 30 and 31, the actions of Jesus, we pointed out, are expressed there in a grammatical way as his being intentional and persistent in his geographical direction, in restricting public notice, and in his theological teaching. He was intent. He was focused. This was ongoing as they made that passage back to Capernaum. In verse 32, this is review, but just to keep us in the context here, the apostles' response is disappointing to us. But it's also instructive on how Scripture is to be understood and believed. The apostles 
are also grammatically, in the same grammatical description, persistent in their agnostic unwillingness. They are unwilling to believe what Jesus said. This doesn't mean they don't believe who Jesus is or they don't believe in God. It's that they want to remain at arm's length. They don't want to enter into what Jesus is saying. They are also self-conscious about the fear of asking Jesus. They don't want to go there. They're gripped with a threatened grief. They know if they ask Jesus more about this, they're going to hear stuff they don't want to hear. And I do think that's instructive for us. We need to face what the Word of God tells us in faith and believe and know that external circumstances providentially are under God's control even though we don't want to go there. We don't want to ask those questions. And we don't want to face those fears oftentimes. So that brings us up then to verses 33 and following uh, as we continue on this morning. And in verse 33 and following, we have Jesus' question to the apostles. It was a rhetorical shock, not only that Jesus knew about their persistent insular arguments over self-promotion, who is the greatest among us, but that he also turned upside down their idea of greatness in the kingdom of God or heaven to be like a servant or a school child. I don't want you to miss that. This is what is coming. This is what Jesus is saying. What were you disputing about yourselves on the way? Remember, Jesus was teaching them intently and persistently telling them this stuff, and, and they were backing off and distancing themselves. And then among themselves, they started disputing, who's going to be the greatest? And then Jesus, as we go through this passage, is going to tell them about greatness in the kingdom of God. It's not what you think. Greatness in the kingdom of God is going to turn your idea of greatness upside down because it's not like the world. And Jesus is going to say, this is the way you're to understand it in terms of being a servant and being a school child. That doesn't sound great. <laughs> so once again, the grammar of the text suggests that while Jesus was pressing the crux of his messianic mission during their walk from Capernaum, or to Capernaum, rather, uh, the apostles distracted themselves from the unwanted implications of Jesus' discourse with preoccupations about gaining rank and power and greatness among themselves in the kingdom. Now, I know we can sort of armchair it and look at the disciples and think, wow, what were they thinking? How could they have responded that way? And yet, I don't think that's far from each one of us. I don't think it's far from us even when we began to pray and we pray for things that we don't even know how to pray for. And oftentimes we're praying in terms of our own comfort, our own greatness, our own uh, success. our own. And I'm not saying that wanting the Lord's blessing, there's nothing wrong with that. But we need to be also praying that, that God would open our eyes to understand his blessing. To embrace by faith those things that are a struggle for us in our flesh and a struggle for us to figure out how can this glorify God? How is this glorifying you, Lord? Going through this, why, how is this going to help me or honor your name? I don't get it. Now, it's interesting, several commentators on this passage have suggested that the part of Jesus' message about resurrection from the dead sparked the apostles' speculations that fired up an argument over greatness. 
Well, in the resurrection, then, who's going to be here? Who's going to be there? Who's going to do this? Who's going to do that? We know they had an understanding or some uh, grasp on the idea of resurrection. And they had some grasp and idea and and expectation about the kingdom of God. And they asked Jesus many times, uh, how's it going to go with us? What are we going to do? Who's going to sit on your right hand? Who's going to sit on your left hand? What are we going to do? We've left everything to follow you. So what are we going to receive? Those were questions that the disciples asked Jesus routinely. And so they fell into this dispute about who was going to be greatest among them according to how they thought greatness was to to be achieved. And I think this is a useful application for us to be warned about selective hearing of Scripture often spinning off in unbalanced theological speculations. I believe that's what was happening with them. They had selectively heard what Jesus was saying, the part they didn't want to know about, and they wanted to distance themselves from, so they latched onto the part they liked. And then what happened? That spun off into unbalanced speculations about the kingdom and how they were going to be great in the kingdom of God. And can also become tests of self-promotion in developing cults of personality. Isn't it interesting that this is still a struggle within our Christian community? How it is that Paul wrote about the church in Corinth fell into this exact same thing. People began to pick up their kickball team. I'm going to be on Paul's team. I'm going to be on uh, Simon's team. I'm going to be on Apollos' team. Oh, we're going to win because we're going to be on Jesus' team. That that happened in uh, Corinth. And it didn't stop there. We must be very careful about this, that we don't just selectively hear the things that we like and therefore become such controversialists that we have a better understanding, we have a better way. We're going to settle this dispute in such a way that we're going to pick the one we like. We're going to go with this guy. We're going to go with this person because they're the one that we like. Personality cults, even within the church. And this is a danger to avoid. Well, in verses 35 through 37, we're told that Jesus sat down and called the twelve to him. And he said, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So Jesus defines his meaning about kingdom greatness using a paradoxical model of servants along with an object lesson of a school child to communicate to about the otherness, the otherness, the not originating from this world of gospel power. I don't want you to miss that. So here is Jesus. We're going to look closer at what he says about being a servant and being last rather than promoting yourself to be first. And then how it is he uses a school child to teach them about the power of the kingdom of God as connected to the otherness, not of this world. It's not like this world. Our whole way of thinking has to change. And then we must embrace by faith how Jesus gives us this uh, instruction, this paradox of a gospel truth that seems to be contradictory, certainly to the world and to our flesh, but is to be embraced by faith as a servant of the Lord. And then how he says, a school child has something to teach us about this. And the school child represents more than just a child, 
And we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. I want you to first see the denotation of Jesus using the word servant. If you will, in verse 35, he sat down and called the twelve to him and said, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all. And we get that idea. We see how the, the, uh, he, he's inverted that or, or turned it over. And then he adds, and servant of all. And the word servant there is the word that we use and translate also as deacon. It's used not in the office of deacon here. It's used in its description of what it means to serve. And the, it's, not the, it's not the term for slave or for bond servant. It's the, it's the term for a willing servant, for a deacon, for a servant. And, and again, it's not the office of deacon here. But you'll understand that the idea that Jesus is expressing here is others focused, getting outside of personal self-interest and doing for others. In the context of this chapter, the episode of the distressed father and his diseased and demon-possessed boy should be remembered because the point was they didn't get outside of themselves. They were disputing with the scribes and in all that dispute, they overlooked and ignored the father in his distress. And so what Jesus says in terms of being a, a servant after the fashion of a, a deacon is to be one who gets outside of himself, who focuses on others, who is attentive and, and uh, concerned and pursues the interests of others over themselves. And then, of course, you might remember that after that, Jesus, as the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, gave the epitome and message of the servant leader, essentially demonstrating the transcendent power and the imminent presence realized in the kingdom of God, and that's through him. He is the quintessential. He is the epitome of the servant leader. He is the shepherd king. And so Jesus, in telling them he was going to go to Jerusalem, he was going to be betrayed, he was going to suffer a violent death, but he would resurrect supernaturally on the third day. All of this was in keeping with his submission to the will of the Father and his being servant of all. Jesus, first of all, became last of all. We get that. We certainly connect with that. But Jesus is making the application that we too are to embrace by faith what he did and to follow him in Christ's likeness. Now, I also want you to understand that Jesus' definition of kingdom greatness here contains a preview of the new covenant Christian church and its dynamics as the kingdom of God to be molded and taught by the, to be modeled and taught by the apostles as servant leaders. After the resurrection of Christ, we see this transformation taking place in the apostles as servant leaders. As a matter of fact, even Peter says in writing uh, his letter says that he is only an elder in the church, though he is an apostle, though he was witness to the transfiguration, though he served with Jesus and was commissioned and restored by Jesus. He says, when it comes to the local church, I am an elder and not an overlord. And you're not to be overlords. You're to be servant leaders of all. And along with that, the Lord Jesus gave the gift of deacons and the qualifications for deacons biblically identified and so here's a preview jesus is saying that the apostles themselves are also to be models of servant leaders and to teach following christ what this meaning of greatness is not in the flesh not in the world 
but in the kingdom of God. So then Jesus gives an object lesson. After having told them this, he takes a little child or a little school child. Now again, we go to the particular language here. And there are a couple of different words that are used, several different words that are used referencing a child or an infant or different stages and in different applications. Here this child, Jesus calls to his, to him, to his uh, attention and calls the child to him. So the child is at least old enough to toddle or walk. Uh, and the term that's used, I believe, is, is significant in terms of, of being a school child. And then Jesus takes that school child up in his arms. And the reason I say that is that uh, this adds to the servant humility that Jesus was talking about. A vivid display of the quality of teachable disposition. And so Jesus is using this school child as an object lesson to say to the disciples, not only are you to be servants, giving attention to others before yourself, you're also to be teachable like this school child. What had just happened on the day or so walk back to Capernaum. They had not been teachable, had they? <laughs> they didn't want to hear what Jesus had to say. And that's why they fell into this dispute among themselves about who was going to be greatest. And in an interesting way, they were acting childish, <laughs> were they not? Like, like uh, kids on the playground disputing over who gets to have the swing. I was here first. No, I was there. It's mine. No, you had your turn. Who's going to be greatest? I make better grades than you. The teacher likes me better. We see children falling into disputes like that. And we see what Jesus is saying. No, don't be like that. Don't be children in malice, as Paul would also say. But rather, be like children in terms of being teachable, which you were not when we were walking on the road. So that humility, not only of being a, a um, servant, but also being teachable. One of the advantages of an object lesson is to get the idea out of the realm of abstract thought and theory into a more concrete form. So remember when Jesus was focusing on actions that were going to take place at Jerusalem, those were very concrete. This is going to happen. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be violently killed, but I'm going to resurrect the third day. Those were concrete, factual statements that Jesus was making to them. But his apostles became embroiled over speculations of greatness based on false theories about the kingdom of God or heaven. They could only think in terms of what they envisioned the kingdom was going to be. They were misguided. And, and Jesus continued to teach them and to tell them, no, you don't get it. You're how, you have a, a wrong, very earthly, earthbound notion of this kingdom. And that's going to change. And it wonderfully did, because when we read, particularly Apostle Peter, after the resurrection, we read his writings, he talks about what is the true temple of God? What is the true kingdom of God? He talks about a temple of living worshipers, not one of stones and concrete. Jesus said when the apostles were admiring the edifice of the temple, how grand and great it was, and with the sense that we're going we're gonna to take over, we're going to move in. Jesus said, you don't get it. Not one stone will be left upon another. It will be torn down. It will collapse. It will be completely ruined and destroyed. And then Peter, having given up that 
like so many Christians have not. (laughs) Peter, having given up that, said, this is the true temple of God. You are the temple of God. A temple of living worshipers, of lively stones, of those whom God has changed from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh, from a temple of stone to a temple of living worshipers. It's glorious. It's wonderful. But we don't get it. Or many people don't get it because they don't listen and they're not teachable in the very ways that Jesus was saying here. Don't look to the world's idea of greatness, but rather be a servant. Embrace those seeming contradictions, trusting the faithfulness of your heavenly Father and be teachable from His holy word so that you may walk in faith. Well, the details of Jesus using this schoolchild as an object lesson and what he says about it and taking the little child up in his arms, uh, the details of the narrative are instructive for us. Here's several things I want you to think about. Little children and infants were commonly around Jesus, unlike many famous and powerful people then or now. So Jesus comes into a house in Capernaum. We don't know whose house it was. We don't know if it, it, we don't know whose child it was. Some have suggested that it was even Peter's child. That's just speculation. We don't know. But what we do know was there was there were children around Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is in the house, somebody's house. The, the 12 are there with him. This is a place where he did ministry. And there were children around. Over and over and over again, we read about children commonly in the presence of the Lord Jesus. We read about even Greeks who brought their infants and wanted Jesus to bless them. And the disciples were, no, you can't do that. Don't trouble him about that. And Jesus was unhappy. You let the little children come unto me. Don't forbid them. For of such is the kingdom of heaven. Time and time again, repeatedly, we find Jesus' compassion extended toward grieving parents in terms of their children. The compassion of the Lord Jesus and His delight is manifest to us. It's revealed to us. It's commonly present. There were children all around the Lord Jesus during the time of His earthly ministry. But do the rich and the famous, do the powerful and the movers and shakers, do they have time for children? No, unless they can use them for their own ends. It's commonly uh, an accepted practice of politicians to go out on the uh, kissing the baby trail. Well, got to go kiss some babies. Not because they care about them. As a matter of fact, the rich, the famous, and the powerful today are collecting together their pressures to continue the murder of babies. That's the world we live in. So then and now, it's not seen as something powerful to attend to children. That's seen to be something for women and for babysitters and for wet nurses. The rich and the powerful... We don't need to be tending babies. Jesus commonly was seen to be caring and accessible and protecting and present with children and babies. Now Jesus taking the little child up into his arms showed real affection and protection. And we see that. I mean, to me it's such an endearing uh, description here. That this little school child comes up to Jesus. I mean, I think about it in terms of days gone by with my own children or, or think about it with my grandchildren or even covenant children. 
Just the delight of, of taking them up in your arms or putting your ha- hand on their head. And it's a sense of, of care, of love and protection. And certainly Jesus demonstrated his affection and his protection in taking this child up in his arms. But I don't want you to miss the, the richer symbolism that is here. It's a faith reality. Do you envision Jesus taking this child up in his arms or holding him in the crook of his arm? That's actually what the description is, that Jesus took the child up in the bend or the crook of his arm. And I didn't put this in the notes, but I couldn't help thinking. You know what it connected with me? It connected me with the idea of the shepherd's crook and of the shepherd taking up the lamb. And I know we, we know that motif throughout Scripture and it's rich to us, but here the good shepherd is taking up a little lambkin child. Do you know that people are more valuable than lambs? You know that, don't you? Children, people made in the image of God are more valuable than animals. We live in a screwed up society. People care more about their animals than they do their children. There's a movement to make it a national felony for cruelty to animals. But there's a movement to slaughter babies even after they're born alive. We live in a fool's world. Reprobate. In their rebellion against God. We need to open our eyes. I've jokingly said the next time I have to fly, I'm going to go up to the counter and say, I identify as a tzitzu and I want to sit in first class. Because they give more attention to dogs than they do to people. Boy, we live in a messed up world. You know why it's messed up, don't you? Because the mind of the flesh hates God and everything about God and the image of God that's a constant reminder that they cannot escape. And so the symbolism of Jesus taking this child up in the crook of his arm represents to us a faith reality of the divine transcendent being. You know who Jesus is? Jesus is God. He takes this child up in his arm and he's saying to us, I'm going to take up every one of my children into my arms. I am God. My arms are big enough. Jesus takes you up in his arms because he is God. He is the imminent presence that empowers the kingdom of God. You want to know of the kingdom and the power and the glory? Then to know Jesus and the promise of his presence with us by his Holy Spirit by which he turns upside down our flesh and the contradictions of our expectations that it'll never work. We'll never get anywhere if we're a servant in school children. We'll never bring the power of God's kingdom to bear if we're servants in school children. But that's what Jesus says. So your argument is with him and not with me. Will we be servants in school children? Will we trust God's providence and serve and will we be teachable to what God's word says and by faith will we embrace it and pray and continue on knowing that the Lord will bring us to glory and not by our own power. So finally, the symbolism of the little child is intensified by Jesus' new covenant gospel qualification of receiving. That's what he says here. It's a a passive acceptance, receiving these kind. Jesus is talking about more than school children here. Jesus uses the the school child as an example and a symbol of these kind 
that come and are to be passively received in His name, in the name of Jesus. This is about the new covenant doctrine of adoption. Adoption by the Spirit of God. Adoption into the family of God. How do we become uh, members of the family of God? It is by the being born again of the Spirit and the adoption of the Spirit. We are not natural born children of God. We're natural born children of the flesh. And in sin, it's only as our heart of stone is changed into a heart of flesh, as only as we are born again into the family of God and received and adopted by the Holy Spirit and attest by faith that we have so been changed. By this concluding application, Jesus intensely clarifies his teaching is not about the moral realm of child advocacy. If you look at this passage and you only think, oh, Jesus loved little children and we should be an advocate for children, you miss the point. Yes, Jesus did love little children. We should be protective and caring of little children. But we better understand God's moral order about how they need to be protected and what it is they need most. Yeah, I care about the fact that children are hungry. I don't want them to be hungry. I care about the fact they need to be educated, but education is not going to save them. Well, I care about those things and those social concerns and social justice issues I care about. It's not the gospel. And that's the point that Jesus is making here. Unless someone is like a little child in faith and transformation through the power of the Spirit of God, they cannot enter the kingdom of God. So no matter how many children we feed, no matter how many children we educate, if they are not preached the gospel of Jesus Christ, then there is no hope of heaven. Because the promise of heaven is the good news of the gospel is the good news of the good news of Jesus Christ. So we fall into this concern of, of wanting to do better for children and of becoming child advocates. But in order to do that, we have to let go the distinctives of God's moral law and of the claim of the gospel that you must be born again. And we enter into this child advocacy that if a child is gender confused, they should make up their own mind. We have enlisted with the devil! not stood true to the gospel of Jesus Christ because every child needs salvation. Every person. This has become my new motto. Every person is made in the image of God and every person needs Jesus Christ as their Savior. I, listen, the doctrine of predestination and election doesn't inhibit me. The doctrine of predestination and God's sovereignty fuels me that the gospel is the power of God into salvation. Servants and school children do not fit the world's idea of famous and powerful. But Jesus makes it clear his kingdom is not of this world's ways. To be humble and teachable as a servant for Jesus Christ is part of being adopted into the family of God, whereby God and the Father would have his children grow up in Christ-like virtues. Through service and privileges, gaining sanctified compassion Charity, joy, understanding, patience, discernment, correction, forgiveness, reconciliation, go on and on and on. These and all Christ-like virtues are enumerated as the fruit of the Spirit and demonstrate the gospel paradoxes of living by faith as the ways of the kingdom of God in heaven on earth.
And so we are called to live by faith. We are called to be servants and little school children and to trust our Heavenly Father and our great schoolmaster and the, the Holy Spirit to guide, to inform, to sanctify, and to teach us through the Word of God. And may our faith rise up above the doubts of our flesh. As I said, there is a case study that follows this in verses 38 and following. Uh, it'll be a couple of weeks before we come back to it. But if you wanted to read ahead, it'd be interesting, I think, for you to be uh, reading the conclusion of Mark chapter 9 and to see how it is still within that um, scope of the transfiguration of Jesus being identified as the Christ of God the transcendent being empowering and the imminent person present with the kingdom of God on earth. Our concluding and parting hymn this morning is hymn number 355.